Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Well, today we're going to present some readings for this season. Uh, We're going to present a special holiday edition of the Zesty Garden program from 2013. Uh, This program was hosted by Brian Earle, ran for several years on Utah Public Radio, and included a a regular segment called Petals and Prose. So we'll hear uh, some of the Petals and Prose team along with um, related individuals, and of course, Brian Earle himself. Uh, This program uh, was first broadcast in 2013. Hello, this is Brian Earle, host of the Zesty Garden. In lieu of a regular Zesty Garden show today, I've decided to present some of our favorite holiday stories as read by the Zesty Garden family. The first story is A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas, as read by Larry Cannon, husband of Helen Cannon. One Christmas was so much like another in those years around the sea town corner, now and out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep, that I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was twelve, or whether it snowed for twelve days and twelve nights when I was six. All the Christmases rolled down toward the two-tongued sea, like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice-edged, fish-freezing waves, and I plunge my hands in the snow and bring out whatever I can find. In goes my hand into that wool-white, bell-tongued ball of holidays, resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea, and out come Mrs. Prothero and the firemen. It was on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve, and I was in Mrs. Prothero's garden waiting for cats with her son Jim. It was snowing. It was always snowing at Christmas. December, in my memory, is white as Lapland, though there were no reindeers, but there were cats. Patient, cold, and callous, our hands wrapped in socks, we waited to snowball the cats. Sleek and long as jaguars, and horrible whiskered spitting and snarling, they would slink and sidle over the white back garden walls, and the lynx-eyed hunters, Jim and I, fur-capped and moccasined trappers from Hudson Bay, off Mumbles Road, would hurl our deadly snowballs at the green of their eyes. The wise cats never appeared. We were so still, Eskimo-footed Arctic marksmen, in the snuffling silence of the eternal snows eternal ever since Wednesday, that we never heard Mrs. Prothero's first cry from her igloo at the bottom of the garden, or if we heard it at all, it was to us like the far-off challenge of our enemy and prey, the neighbor's polar cat. But soon the voice grew louder. Fire! cried Mrs. Prothero, and she beat the dinner gong, and we ran down the garden with the snowballs in our arms toward the house, and smoke indeed was pouring out of the dining-room, and the gong was bumblating, and Mrs. Prothero was announcing ruin like a town-crier in Pompeii. This was better than all the cats in Wales standing on the wall in a row. We bounded into the house laden with snowballs, and stopped at the open door of the smoke-filled room. Something was burning all right. Perhaps it was Mr. Prothero who always slept there after midday dinner with a newspaper over his face. But he was standing in the middle of the room saying, A fine Christmas, and smacking at the smoke with a slipper. Call the fire brigade, cried Mrs. Prothero as she beat the gong. They won't be there. It's Christmas. There was no fire to be seen, only clouds of smoke, and Mr. Prothero standing in the middle of them, waving his slipper as though he were conducting. Do something, he said, and we threw all our snowballs into the smoke. I think we missed Mr. Prothero, and ran out of the house to the telephone box. Let's call the police as well, Jim said, and the ambulance, and Ernie Jenkins, he likes fires. But we only called the fire brigade. And soon the fire engine came, and three tall men in helmets brought a hose into the house, and Mr. Prothero got out just in time before they turned it on. Nobody could have had a noisier Christmas Eve. And when the firemen turned off the hose and were standing in the wet, smoky room, Jim's aunt, Miss Prothero, came downstairs and peered in at them. Jim and I waited very quietly to hear what she would say to them. She said the right thing, always. 
She looked at the three tall firemen in their shining helmets, standing amid the smoke and cinders and dissolving snowballs, and she said, Would you like anything to read? Years and years and years ago when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales, and birds the color of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in damp front farmhouse parlors, and we chased with the jawbones of deacons, the English and the bears, before the motor car, before the wheel, before the duchess-faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills barebank, it snowed and it snowed. But here a small boy says, It snowed last year, too. And I made a snowman, and my brother knocked it down, and I knocked my brother down, and then we had tea. But that was not the same snow, I say. Our snow was not only shaken from whitewash buckets down the sky. It came shawling out of the ground, and swam and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses, like a pure and grandfather moss, minutely white ivied the walls, and settled on the postman opening the gate like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white-torn Christmas cards. Were there postmen then, too? With sprinkling eyes and wind-cherried noses, on spread frozen feet they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully, but all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. You mean the postman went rat-a-tat-tat and, and the doors rang? I mean the bells that the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells, too. Inside them? No, no. In the bat-black, white belfries tugged by bishops and storks, and they rang their tidings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice-cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window, and the weathercocks crew for Christmas on our fence. Get back to the postman. Oh, they were just ordinary postmen, fond of walking and dogs and Christmas and the snow. They knocked on the doors with blue knuckles. Ours has got a black knocker. And then they stood on the white welcome mat in the little drifted porches and huffed and puffed, making ghosts with their breath and jogged from foot to foot like small boys wanting to go out. And then the presents? And then the presents. After the Christmas box, and the cold postman with a rose on his button nose tingled down the tea-tray slithered run of the chilly glinting hill. He went in his ice-bound boots like a man on fishmonger slabs. He wagged his bag like a frozen camel's hump, dizzily turned the corner on one foot, and by God, he was gone. Get back to the presents. There were the useful presents, engulfing mufflers of the old coach days, and mittens made for giant sloths, zebra scarfs of a substance like silky gum that could be tug-award down to the galoshes, blinding tam-o'-shanters like patchwork tea-cozies, and bunny-suited busbies and balaclavas for victims of head-shrinking tribes from ants who always wore wool next to the skin. There were mustached and rasping vests that made you wonder why the ants had any skin left at all. And once I had a little crocheted nose-bag from an ant, now, alas, no longer whinnying with us. And pictureless books, in which small boys, though warned with quotations not to, would skate on Farmer Giles' pond, and did, and drowned. And books that told me everything about the wasp, except why. Go on to the useless presents. Bags of moist and many-colored jelly babies, and a folded flag, and a false nose, and a tram conductor's cap, and a machine that punched tickets and rang a bell, <laughs> never a catapult, once by mistake that no one could explain, a little hatchet, and a celluloid duck that made when you pressed it a most unduck-like sound, a mewing moo that an ambitious cat might make who wished to be a cow, and a painting book in which I could make the grass, the trees, the sea, and the animals any color I pleased, and still the dazzling sky-blue sheep are grazing in the red field under the rainbow-billed and pea-green birds.
Hard boils, toffee, fudge, and all sorts, crunches, cracknels, humbugs, glaciers, marzipan, and butter welch for the welch, and troops of bright tin soldiers, who if they could not fight could always run, and snakes and families and happy ladders, and easy hobby games for little engineers, complete with instructions. Oh, easy for Leonardo. And a whistle, to make the dogs bark, to wake up the old man next door, to make him beat on the wall with his stick to shake our pictures off the wall, and a packet of cigarettes. You put one in your mouth, and you stood at the corner of the street, and you waited hours in vain for an old lady to scold you for smoking a cigarette, and then with a smirk you ate it. And then it was breakfast under the balloons. Were there uncles like in our house? There are always uncles at Christmas, the same uncles. And on Christmas morning, with dog-disturbing whistle and sugar fags, I would scour the swathe of town for news of the little world and find always a dead bird by the white post office or by the deserted swings, perhaps a robin, all but one of his fires out. Men and women wading or scooping back from chapel with tap-room noses and wind-bust cheeks, all albinos, huddled in their stiff, black, jarring feathers against the irreligious snow. Mistletoe hung from the gas brackets in all the front parlors. There was sherry and walnuts and bottled beer and crackets by the dessert spoons. Cats in their furabouts watched the fires, and the high-heaped fire spat, all ready for the chestnuts and the mulling pokers. Some few large men sat in the front parlors without their collars uncles almost certainly, trying their new cigars, holding them out judiciously at arm's length, returning them to their mouths, coughing, and then holding them out again as though waiting for the explosion, and some few small ants, not wanted in the kitchen, nor anywhere else for that matter, sat on the very edges of their chairs, poised and brittle, afraid to break like faded cups and saucers. Not many of those mornings trod the piling streets. An old man always, fawn-bowlered, yellow-gloved, and at this time of year with spats of snow, would take his constitutional to the white bowling green and back, as he would take it wet or fine on Christmas Day or Doomsday. Sometimes two hale young men with big pipes blazing, no overcoats and wind-blown scarves would trudge unspeaking down to the forlorn sea to work up an appetite, to blow away the fumes, who knows, to walk into the waves until nothing of them was left but the two curling smoke-clouds of their inextinguishable briars. Then I would be slap-dashing home, the gravy smell of the dinners of others, the bird smell, the brandy, the pudding and mints coiling up to my nostrils. When out of a snow-clogged side lane would come a boy, the spit of myself, with a pink-tipped cigarette and the violet past of a black eye, cocky as a bullfinch, leering all to himself. I hated him on sight and sound, and would be about to put my dog-whiskle to my lips and blow him off the face of Christmas, when suddenly he, with a violet wink, put his whistle to his lips, and blew so stridently, so high, so exquisitely loud, that gobbling faces, their cheeks bulged with goose, would press against their tinseled windows the whole length of the white echoing street. For dinner we had turkey and blazing pudding, and after dinner the uncles sat in front of the fire, loosened all buttons, put their large moist hands over their watch chains, groaned a little, and slept. Mothers, aunts, and sisters scuttled to and fro bearing tureens. Auntie Bessie, who had already been frightened twice by a clockwork mouse, whimpered at the sideboard and had some elderberry wine. The dog was sick. Auntie Dosie had to have three aspirins, but Auntie Hannah, who liked port, stood in the middle of the snowbound backyard, singing like a big-bosomed thrush. I would blow up balloons to see how big they would blow up to, and when they burst, which they all did, the uncles jumped and rumbled. In the rich and heavy afternoon, the uncles breathing like dolphins and snow descending, I would sit among festoons and Chinese lanterns and nibble dates and try to make a model man of war, following the instructions for little engineers 
and produce what might be mistaken for a seagoing tram car. Or I would go out, my bright new boots squeaking into the white world, onto the seaward hill, to call on Jim and Dan and Jack, and to pad through the still streets, leaving huge, deep footprints on the hidden pavements. I bet people will think there's been hippos. What would you do if you saw a hippo coming down our street? I'd go like this. Bang! I'd throw him over the railings and roll him down the hill, and then I'd tickle him under the ear and he'd wag his tail. What would you do if you saw two hippos? Iron flanked and bellowing, he hippos clanked and battered through the scudding snow toward us as we passed Mr. Daniel's house. Let's post Mr. Daniel a snowball through his letterbox. Let's write things in the snow. Let's write, Mr. Daniel looks like a spaniel all over his lawn. Or we walked on the white shore. Can the fishes see it snowing? The silent, one-clouded heavens drifted on to the sea. Now we were snow-blind travelers lost in the north hills, and vast dew-lapped dogs with flasks around their necks ambled and shambled up to us baying excelsior. We returned home through the poor streets, where only a few children fumbled with bare red fingers in the wheel-rutted snow and cat-called after us, their voices fading away as we trudged uphill into the cries of the dock birds and the hooting of ships out in the whirling bay. And then at tea, the recovered uncles would be jolly, and the ice cake loomed in the corner of the table like a marble grave. Auntie Hannah laced her tea with rum, because it was only once a year. Bring out the tall tales now that we told by the fire, as the gaslight bubbled like a diver. Ghosts hooed like owls in the long nights, when I dared not look over my shoulder. Animals lurked in the cubbyhole under the stairs where the gas meter ticked. And I remember that we went singing carols once, when there wasn't the shaving of a moon to light the flying streets. At the end of a long road was a drive that led up to a large house, and we stumbled up the darkness of the drive that night, each one of us afraid, each one of us holding a stone in his hand in case, and all of us too brave to say a word. The wind through the trees made noises, as of old and unpleasant and maybe web-footed men wheezing in caves. We reached the black bulk of the house. What shall we give them? Hark the herald? No, said Jack. Good King Wenceslas, I'll count three. One, two, three, and we began to sing, our voices high and seemingly distant in the snow-felted distant darkness around the house that was occupied by nobody we knew. We stood close together near the dark, door. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. And then a small, dry voice, like the voice of someone who has not spoken for a long time, joined our singing. A small, dry, eggshell voice from the other side of the door. A small, dry voice through the keyhole. And when we stopped running, we were outside our house. The front room was lovely, Balloons floated under the hot water bottle, gulping gas. Everything was good again, and shone over the town. Perhaps it was a ghost, Jim said. Perhaps it was trolls, Dan said, who was always reading. Let's go and see if there's any jelly left, Jack said. And we did that. Always on Christmas night there was music. An uncle played the fiddle. A cousin sang Cherry Ripe and another uncle sang Drake's drum. It was very warm in the little house. Auntie Hannah, who had got onto the parsnip wine, sang a song about bleeding hearts and death, and then another in which she said her heart was like a bird's nest. And then everybody laughed again, and then I went to bed. Looking through my bedroom window, out into the moonlight and the unending smoke-colored snow, I could see the lights in the windows of all the other houses on our hill and hear the music rising from them up the long, steadily falling night. I turned the gas down. I got into bed. I said some words to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept.
You're listening to a special edition of The Zesty Garden. You just heard Larry Cannon reading A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. And we're presenting this special holiday edition of The Zesty Garden from 2013 on Access Utah today. Hope you're enjoying these readings. More to come following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Support also comes from the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau gift shop, including the book 117 Amazing Things to Do in Logan and Cache Valley, and other local gifts. Logan shirts, hats, and socks, games, books, and other collectibles. Located at 199 North Main in Logan. More information at explorelogan.com. It's time for some holiday music with a bit of swing. I'm Felix Contreras, and this year we've assembled some familiar names, Jason Moran and Booker T. Jones, and two others you should definitely know, James Francis and Donna Olano. They'll all be on stage at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. for a jazz piano Christmas from NPR. Monday, December 14th at 9 p.m. here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Today we've reached back in the archives uh, to a special holiday edition of the Zesty Garden program from 2013. Uh, this program was hosted for several years by Brian Earle. This is Brian Earle with the Zesty Garden. 20 years ago on my wedding day, I was given a wedding present by a very dear friend in Menden. It's this book that I'm about to read to you, Why Christmas Trees Aren't Perfect by Richard H. Snyder. They say if you creep into an evergreen forest late at night, you can hear the trees talking. If you listen very carefully to the whisper of the wind, you can hear the older pines telling the younger ones why they will never be perfect. They will always have a bent branch here, a gap there, but Long, long ago, all evergreen trees were perfect. Each one took special pride in branches that sloped smoothly down from pointed top to evenly shaped skirt. This was especially true in a small kingdom far beyond the Carpathian Mountains in Europe. Here, the evergreen trees were the most beautiful of all, for here the sun shone just right, not too hot, not too dim. Here the rain fell just enough to keep the ground moist and soft so no tree went thirsty, and here the snow fell gently, day after day, to keep every branch fresh and green. Each year as Christmas approached, the Queen's woodsman would search the royal evergreen forest for the most perfect, most beautiful tree. The one fortunate enough to be chosen would be cut on the first Saturday of Advent. It would then be carefully carried to the castle and set up in the center of the great hall. There, it reigned in honor for all the Christmas celebrations. Out in the hushed forest, every evergreen hoped for this honor. Each tree tried to grow its branches and needles to perfection. All of them strained to have the best form and appearance. One tree, small pine, grew near the edge of the forest and promised to be the most beautiful of all. As a seedling, it had listened carefully to the older trees who knew what was best for young saplings, and it had tried so very hard to grow just right. As a result, everything about small pine, from its deep sea-green color to the curling tip of its evenly spaced branches, was perfect. It had, in fact, already overheard jealous whispers from the other trees, but it paid them no mind. Small Pine knew that if one did one's very best, what anyone else said didn't matter. One cold night, when a bright full moon glittered on the crusty snow, a little gray rabbit came hopping as fast as he could into the grove of evergreens. The rabbit's furry sides heaved in panic, from beyond the hill came the howling of wild dogs and the thrill of the hunt. The bunny, his eyes wide with fright, frantically searched for cover, but the dark, cold trees lifted their branches artfully from the snow and frowned. They did not like this interruption of their quiet evening when growing was at its best. 
Faster and faster, the rabbit circled as the excited howling of the dogs sounded louder and louder. And then, Small Pine's heart shuddered. When the terrified rabbit ran near, Small Pine dipped its lower branches down, down, down to the snow. And in that instant before the wild dogs broke into the grove, the rabbit slipped under Small Pine's evergreen screen. He huddled safely among the comforting branches while the dogs galloped by and disappeared into the forest. In the morning, the rabbit went home to his burrow and Small Pine tried to lift its lower branches back up to their proper height. It strained and struggled, but the branches had been pressed down too long through the night. Oh well, Small Pine thought, no matter. Perhaps the woodsman wouldn't notice a few uneven branches near the ground in a tree so beautiful. Several days later, a terrible blizzard lashed the land. No one remembered ever having so much wind and snow. Villagers slammed their shutters tight while birds and animals huddled in their nests and dens. A brown mother wren had become lost in the storm. With feathers so wet she could barely fly, she went from one large evergreen to another looking for a shelter, but each tree she approached feared the wren would ruin its perfect shape and clenched its branches tight like a fist. Finally, the exhausted wren fluttered toward Small Pine. Once more, Small Pine's heart opened, and so did its branches. The mother wren nestled on a branch near the top, secure at last. But when the storm ended and the bird had flown away, Small Pine could not move its top branches back into their perfect shape. In them would be a gap evermore. Days passed and winter deepened. The packed snow had frozen so hard that the deer in the forest could not reach the tender ground moss, which they ate to survive. Only the older, stronger deer could dig through the icy snow with their hooves. One little fawn had wandered away from his mother. Now he was starving. He inched into the pine grove and noticed the soft, tender, evergreen tips. He tried to nibble on them, but every tree quickly withdrew its needles so the tiny deer teeth couldn't chew them. Thin and weak, he staggered against small pine. Pity filled the tree's heart, and it stretched out its soft needles for the starving fawn to eat. But alas... When the deer was strong enough to scamper away, Small Pine's branches looked very ragged. Small Pine wilted in sorrow. It could hear what the larger, still perfect trees were saying about how bad it looked. A tear of pine gum oozed from the tip of a branch. Small Pine knew it could never hope for the honor of being the queen's Christmas tree. Lost in despair, Small Pine did not see the good queen come with the woodsman into the forest. It was the first Saturday of Advent, and she had come to choose the finest tree herself because this was a special celebration in the history of her kingdom. As the royal sleigh, drawn by two white horses, slowly passed through the forest, her careful eye scanned the evergreens. Each one was hoping to be the royal choice. When the queen saw Small Pine, a flush of anger filled her. How could such an ugly tree with so many drooping branches and gaps be allowed in the royal forest? She decided to have a woodsman cut it to throw away and nodded for the sleigh to drive on. But then she raised her hand for the sleigh to stop and glanced back at the forlorn little pine. She noticed the tracks of small animals under its uneven needles. She saw a wren's feather caught in its branches, and as she studied the gaping hole in its side and its ragged shape, understanding filled her heart. This is the one, she said, and pointed to Small Pine. The woodsman gasped, but they did as the queen directed. To the astonishment of all the evergreens in the forest, Small Pine was carried away to the great hall in the castle. There it was decorated with shimmering silver stars and golden angels, which sparkled and flashed in the lights of thousands of glowing candles. On Christmas Day, a huge Yule log blazed in the fireplace at the end of the great hall. While orange flames chuckled and crackled, the queen's family and all the villagers danced and sang together around small pine. 
and everyone who danced and sang around it said that small pine was the finest Christmas tree yet, for in looking at its drooping, nibbled branches, they saw the protecting arm of their father or the comforting lap of a mother, and some, like the wise queen, saw the love of Christ expressed on earth. So, if you walk among evergreens today, you will find, along with rabbits, birds, and other happy living things, many trees like small pine. You will see a drooping limb which gives cover, a gap offering a warm resting place, or branches ragged from feeding hungry animals. For, as have many of us, the trees have learned that living for the sake of others makes us most beautiful in the eyes of God. You're listening on Access Utah today to a special edition of the Zesty Garden program from 2013. We'll have more following this. Utah Public Radio programming is supported by our members and CAPSA, a nonprofit rape crisis center providing free and confidential services for cash and rich counties, including support phone line, rape exam advocacy, and clinical therapy. Information at CAPSA.org. Support also comes from the Utah Assistive Technology Program, helping friends and family connect. Skype and Google Meet offer captioning. Anyone with a hearing impairment can join the conversation at no cost. Information on communication apps and how to use them can be found at uatp.usu.edu under COVID resources. You're listening to Access Utah and a very special uh, edition of the program today. We're uh, reaching back in the archives. We're featuring a very special Zesty Garden program from 2013. I'm Nancy Williams. And today I'm going to read some stories to you that are about winter and Christmas and a couple of other things, too. Let's begin. This is a story called On Santa's Team, and it's by Author Unknown, one of those great anonymous things, a work that's out that some people know, and it's just a lovely thing. My grandma taught me everything about Christmas. I was just a kid. I remember tearing across town on my bike to visit her on the day my big sister dropped the bomb. There is no Santa Claus, jeered my sister. Even dummies know that. My grandma was not the gushy kind and never had been. I fled to her that day because I knew she'd be straight with me. I knew grandma always told the truth, and I knew that the truth always went down a whole lot easier when swallowed with one of her world-famous cinnamon rolls. Grandma was home, and the rolls were still warm. Between bites, I told her everything. She was ready for me. No Santa Claus, she snorted. Ridiculous! Don't believe it! That rumor has been going around for years, and it makes me mad, plain mad. Now put on your coat and let's go. Go? Go where, Grandma? I asked. I hadn't even finished my second cinnamon roll. Where turned out to be Kirby's General Store, the one store in town that had a little bit of just about everything. As we walked through its doors, Grandma handed me ten dollars. That was a bundle in those days. Take this money, she said, and buy something for someone who needs it. I'll wait for you in the car. And then she turned and walked out of Kirby's. I was only eight years old. I'd often gone shopping with my mother, but never had I shopped for anything all by myself. The store seemed big and crowded, full of people scrambling to finish their Christmas shopping. For a few moments, I just stood there confused, clutching that $10 bill, wondering what to buy and who on earth to buy it for. I thought of everybody I knew, my family, my friends, my neighbors, the kids at school, the people who went to my church. I was just about thought out when suddenly I thought of Bobby Decker. He was a kid with bad breath and messy hair, and he sat right behind me in Mrs. Pollock's grade 2 class. Bobby Decker didn't have a coat. I knew that because he never went out for recess during the winter. His mother always wrote a note telling the teacher that he had a cough, but all we kids knew that Bobby Decker didn't have a cough, and he didn't have a coat. I fingered the $10 bill with growing excitement. I would buy Bobby Decker a coat. I settled on a red corduroy one that had a hood to it. It looked real warm, and he would like that. I didn't see a price tag, but $10 ought to buy anything. I put the coat and my $10 bill on the counter and pushed them toward the lady behind it. She looked at the coat, the money, and me. Is this a Christmas present for someone? She asked kindly. 
Yes, I replied shyly. It's for Bobby. He's in my class and he doesn't have a coat. The nice lady smiled at me. I didn't get any change, but she put the coat in a bag and wished me a Merry Christmas. That evening, Grandma helped me wrap the coat in Christmas paper and ribbon and to write to Bobby from Santa Claus on it. Grandma said that Santa always insisted on secrecy, and then she drove me over to Bobby Decker's house, explaining as we went that I was now, and forever officially, one of Santa's helpers. Grandma parked down the street from Bobby's house, and she and I crept noiselessly and hid in the bushes by his front walk. Suddenly, Grandma gave me a nudge. All right, Santa Claus, she whispered. Get going. I took a deep breath, dashed for his front door, threw the present down on the step, pounded on the doorbell twice, and flew back to the safety of the bushes and Grandma. Together, we waited breathlessly in the darkness for the front door to open. Finally, it did, and there stood Bobby. He looked down, looked around, picked up his present, took it inside, and closed the door. Forty years haven't dimmed the thrill of those moments spent shivering beside my grandma in Bobby Decker's bushes. That night, I realized that those awful rumors about Santa Claus were just what grandma said they were. Ridiculous. Santa was alive and well, and we were on his team. Now I'd like to read a story from The New Yorker called Let It Snow. It's written by David Sedaris and published in 2003 in their December 22nd issue. And it's a true story of his growing up years, too. Winters were frustratingly mild in North Carolina, but the year I was in the fifth grade, we got lucky. Snow fell, and for the first time in years, it accumulated School was canceled, and two days later we got lucky again. There were eight inches on the ground, and rather than melting, it froze. On the fifth day of our vacation, my mother had a little breakdown. Our presence had disrupted the secret life she led while we were at school, and when she could no longer take it, she threw us out. It wasn't a gentle request, but something closer to an eviction. Get the hell out of my house, she said. We reminded her that it was our house, too, and she opened the front door and shoved us into the carport. And stay out, she shouted. My sisters and I went down the hill and sledded with the other children from the neighborhood. A few hours later, we returned home, surprised to find that the door was locked. Oh, come on, we said. I rang the bell, and when no one answered, we went to the window and saw our mother in the kitchen watching television. Normally, she waited until five o'clock to have a drink, but for the past few days, she'd been making an exception. Drinking didn't count if you followed a glass of wine with a cup of coffee, and so she had a goblet and a mug positioned before her on the countertop. Hey, we yelled, open the door. It's us. We knocked on the pane, and without looking in our direction, she refilled her goblet and left the room. That witch, my sister Lisa said. We pounded again and again, and when our mother failed to answer, we went around back and threw snowballs at her bedroom window. You're going to be in so much trouble when Dad gets home, we shouted, and in response, my mother pulled the drapes. Dusk approached, and as it grew colder, it occurred to us that we could possibly die. It happened, surely. Selfish mothers wanted the house to themselves, and their children were discovered years later, frozen like mastodons in blocks of ice. My sister Gretchen suggested we call our father, but none of us knew his number, and he probably wouldn't have done anything anyway. He'd gone to work specifically to escape our mother, and between the weather and her mood, it could be hours, or even days, before he returned home. One of us should get hit by a car, I said. That would teach the both of them. I pictured Gretchen, her life hanging by a thread as my parents paced the halls of Rex Hospital, wishing they had been more attentive. It was really the perfect solution. With her out of the way, the rest of us would be more valuable and have a bit more room to spread out. Gretchen, go lie in the street. Make Amy do it, she said. Amy, in turn, pushed it off on Tiffany, who was the youngest and had no concept of death. It's like sleeping, we told her, only you get a canopy bed. Poor Tiffany. She'd do just about anything in return for a little affection. All you had to do was call her Tiff, and whatever you wanted was yours. Her allowance, her dinner, the contents of her Easter basket. Her eagerness to please was absolute and naked. 
When we asked her to lie in the middle of the street, her only question was, where? We chose a quiet dip between two hills, a spot where drivers were almost required to skid out of control. She took her place, this six-year-old in a butter-yellow coat, and we gathered on the curb to watch. The first car to come along belonged to a neighbor, a fellow Yankee who had outfitted his tires with chains and stopped a few feet from our sister's body. Is that a person? he asked. Well, sort of, Lisa said. She explained that we'd been locked out of our house, and while the man appeared to accept it as a reasonable explanation, I'm pretty sure he was the one who told on us. Another car passed, and then we saw our mother, this puffy figure awkwardly negotiating the crest of the hill. She did not own a pair of pants, and her legs were buried to the calf in snow. We wanted to send her home, to kick her out of nature, just as she had kicked us out of the house, but it was hard to stay angry at someone that pitiful looking. "'Are you wearing your loafers?' Lisa asked, and in response our mother raised a bare foot. "'I was wearing loafers,' she said. "'I mean, really, it was there a second ago.' This was how things went. One moment she was locking us out of our own house, and the next we were rooting around in the snow looking for her left shoe. Oh, forget about it, she said. It'll turn up in a few days. Gretchen fitted her cap over my mother's foot. Lisa secured it with her scarf, and surrounding her tightly on all sides, we made our way home. Here's another story from the New Yorker from the same issue called Hot or Cold, and it has to do with how our memories trick us. This one is by Mele Malloy. My earliest memory of winter is of being left in a van in the snow somewhere in Montana while my parents, out cross-country skiing, were chased by a bear. It sounds suspect to me, too, like a half-remembered dream. I was four and my brother was two. The van was my parents' red Volkswagen bus with flowered curtains and the back converted into a bed. There was a babysitter, a pretty teenage girl I call Anne Amowski. Not her name, but my approximation. She was nice, but I was bored. She had hid hard candies for me and then told me if I was hot or cold. Behind the seats, cold. In the glove compartment, getting warmer. Near the gas pedal, burning up. Under the clutch, there it was, a smooth, round butterscotch candy in a yellow cellophane wrapper, the kind of thing my parents would never buy except on a trip like this. We played outside in our snowsuits, and then the sitter turned on the engine and the heat. We sat near the vents, drinking hot chocolate from a thermos lid. The windows were frosted from our breathing. Out there in the snow where we couldn't see, my parents glided along, still married to each other. My mother was younger than I am now. They wore wool pants and sweaters and hats, and it was only from a distance that their progress looked effortless and unimpeded. Up close, the gliding through fresh snow made them sweat, and my father's glasses steamed up. Their noses and cheeks were red, and they were laughing at a joke he'd made. The high, clear air smelled like Douglas fir and snow. Then they saw the bear. They had taken it by surprise, startling it up out of a snowbank where it was digging for roots, and it blocked their way back to the road. It stood on its hind legs, nearsighted, and sniffed to see what they were. The standoff went on for what seemed like minutes, and then the bear dropped back to its forelegs to keep digging. My father, unsure what to do, started on a detour, a wide semicircle around the bear. When they were safely passed, my mother looked back to see the bear following them in the tracks their skis had made in the snow. She had chicken sandwiches in her backpack, and she called to my father, who turned to look. Ski faster, he said, but not too fast, and sing. They started to sing. The bear went over the mountain, but it had no effect on the real bear, which ambled along in their tracks. Like the bear in the song, this one had nowhere pressing to go. It would go wherever they flattened a trail for it to see what it could see. They were leading it right back to the bus, to where the kids might be playing in the snow, but they couldn't stop. Let's spread out, my father said after a while, so we don't make such a wide path. They did, out of breath now, each breaking a separate trail. 
The bear paused when it reached the fork, and then it followed my mother. It didn't seem to mind the single set of tracks. Now what, she said, starting to panic. Keep skiing, Dad said. When the Volkswagen was in sight, they waved, trying to signal that we should stay in the bus, and then they watched horrified as we all piled out to greet them, my brother in the babysitter's arms, a perfect snack. From the bus, I heard my father shout, Get back in the car! Then I saw the bear. The sitter hustled my brother in, and I watched as they all bore down on us, my parents skiing ten feet apart, the bear lumbering inexorably behind. Finally, the bear saw or smelled the Volkswagen and stopped. I was lifted inside by my armpits. My parents arrived breathless and struggled out of their skis while the bear watched, deliberating. The doors slammed closed and we drove away. Being eaten by a bear wasn't our fate. Life had granted us all a reprieve. I called my father to find out what I'd got right about the story. And he said, what? You're dreaming? You're dreaming that. There was a mama moose that chased us once, but it was summer. Summer and a moose. All I'd been sure of was snow and bear. Bears hibernate in the winter, he said, and then he suggested three other run-ins with grizzlies that I might be thinking of. None was my pre-divorce winter scene, but mine still feels right. The bus, the sitter, the snow my parents separating to avoid the thing that threatened us, the thing bearing down on us anyway, and then the family rescue at the last minute, disaster left outside in the cold. Finally, I'd like to read a column that was written by A.J. Simmons and published in the Herald-Journal on December 12th of 1983. A.J. was a wonderful history uh, columnist and the curator of special collections at Utah State University. He did research about all kinds of things in Cache Valley and the history of it. And this is a piece he did on Christmas trees. And he titled it, Christmas Trees, A Late Valley Arrival. There are all sorts of historical mysteries in Cache Valley history. That's what makes investigating our collective past so interesting. And one of the points that I've tried for years to determine is just when the Christmas tree became the focus of our holiday celebrations. I suspect it was pretty late in the history of this valley. The Christmas tree is a German custom and was probably brought to this country by the Hessian soldiers who fought for George III during the late unpleasantness with Great Britain. The earliest illustration of any Christmas tree is mentioned in Clement Moore's classic visit from St. Nicholas. That suggests that the tree was not an essential part of Christmas, certainly not like the stockings hung from the chimney with care. Like white dresses for brides and the use of Mendelssohn's wedding march for marriage ceremonies, I suspect that the Christmas tree, as a thing in the private house, stems from Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Albert brought the custom of the tree from his native Saxony to Windsor Castle, and it immediately was widely emulated, first throughout the United Kingdom and then among the upper classes of the Atlantic seaboard. But it took the British royal family to bring the tree to this country to national acceptance. Before Albert, Christmas trees seemed to have been confined to certain immigrant communities from Central Europe. So when did the tree come to Cache Valley? That is the unknown. The valley's Mormon leadership was largely old-line Yankee from New England, where the tree was not an established custom. Greens in the house, yes, but not necessarily the tree. They may have been in use occasionally in Providence in the very early years of settlement by the German and Swiss settlers there, but there is no record that I have ever been able to find that that was the case. The first reference to a tree in Cache Valley that I've ever found is from 1880 in Oxford, Idaho. And the Oxford tree was not in a private home, but rather in the Methodist schoolhouse. It was apparently a custom that had been brought to Oxford by the mission school teacher. At any rate, its appearance was unlikely enough that it rated an article in Oxford's newspaper, the Idaho Enterprise. The tree as a community rather than an individual decoration seems to have held during the 1880s in this valley. The first Christmas tree in Cornish was exactly 100 years ago in the town's New West School. 
C.G. Wood described the occasion in his 1924 History of Trenton. Quote, in October of 83, William Goodwin, Cliff Goodwin, Joseph C., and Charles G. Wood took teams and went to Cottonwood and got a set of house logs. Money was collected for lumber and shingles, and a schoolhouse was built and furnished in time to hold a Christmas celebration with a Christmas tree, program, and dance on Christmas Eve, 1883. That Christmas trees were long a rarity, and the sight of one a pretty special occasion is indicated in Lars Fredrickson's description of a group of happy buyers in Weston. They had made a significant purchase for their homes in Corinne, and Fredrickson says they all came home as happy as a lot of children who'd been up to a Christmas tree. But things clearly changed during the 1890s. In the early 1880s, there are very few mentions of Christmas trees in the pages of December issues of the Utah Journal, which is a direct ancestor of today's Herald Journal. But by 1892, the tree seems to have become commonplace. Part of the reason is that it probably took that long for the idea of a Christmas tree to catch on with the general population. But I suspect a large part of the delay was due to the very cramped style of living in pioneer days. The homes of the first generation of settlers in Cache Valley were just not large enough to accommodate the normally large families of the day, and this, and a tree. It took the 1890s, when most pioneer homes were replaced by new dwellings or were significantly enlarged so that most Cache Valley families at least had the room for a Christmas tree. And that, again, is by A.J. Simmons from December 12, 1983. This story of an Australian Christmas in 1941 comes from Randolph Stowe's The Merry-Go-Round in the Sea. It began to be nearly Christmas, and the boy's Aunt Judith came to stay with Grandma, bringing two girl cousins too small to be interesting. Auntie Judith had a soothing laugh, which made him feel comfortable. Now Grandma was cooking things all the time, making cakes and biscuits, and when she had finished with the basins, she put them on a table out on the lawn so that Rob and Nan and the cousins could lick the basin, running their fingers around them and licking them. They were a trial to Grandma, who was hot in front of the wood stove, but she let them make dough men and bake them in the oven. And when she got tired of the children, she would give them each a biscuit, with a face on it made of currants, and say, Now run away laughing. They called the biscuits runaway laughings. Grandma, can I have a runaway laughing? In the mornings, Auntie Kay made toast in front of the wood stove, holding a newspaper before her face to keep off the heat. Aunt Kay's face got red in the light from the jam wood logs. The wood smelled like raspberry jam when it lay on the hearth and like toast when it was burning. On Christmas Eve, the boy could not sleep. The pillow slip hung at the bed end, gaping for presents, and he lay listening to the sea. Then he heard his father and mother coming, creeping, or trying to creep, but his father's big boots made a noise like chopping wood. He heard the rustle of presents going into the pillow slip and lay with his eyes closed, giggling inside, thinking, Father Christmas wears army boots. He had half a mind to tell them that he knew about Father Christmas. The morning was rustling parcels and the smell of new presents, the soap smell that Grandma Coram's presents always had, bright string and paper. They went to dinner at Grandma's, the big table in the dining room surrounded by relations. The cousins compared presents, coveted presents, offered to wrap presents, swap presents, and fought. The cousins belonging to Susan had presents from Rick, and the boy was jealous. He only had a present which said, from Aunt Mary and Uncle Ernest and Rick. In the evening, the grown-ups sat in deck chairs in the cool, and the children crawled and rolled in the fresh lawn. Rob sat in the grass beside Aunt Kay and played with a toy merry-go-round, which made music as it turned. It belonged to his cousin Jenny, and he did not intend to give it back. The grown-ups were talking, a quiet sound in the background of the tinkling music. One word they kept saying again and again. He repeated it to himself. Hong Kong, he said, listening to it. Hong Kong. He giggled inside. It was such a goofy sound. One night, the boy woke in the dark, and the world had gone mad and screaming. 
There were roaring, screaming sounds in the night, then shriller, sharper, multitudinous screaming sounds closer at hand. From the drawing room came loud voices. He got up in the dark and he ran, running toward the lighted drawing room, which was full of ladies and men and soldiers, standing up and drinking from glasses and kissing each other. He stood in the doorway in his pajamas, and his mother came towards him with blue eyes. "'What's the matter, Rob?' she said, bending down to him. "'Did you have a nasty old nightmare?' "'No,' he said, breathing shakily. "'It's the noises.' "'Oh, that's just grown-ups being silly,' his mother said. "'The ships are blowing their sirens, and people are tooting their car horns because it's New Year.' "'What's New Year?' said the boy, still trembling. Well, it's a different year from last year with a different number. Yesterday it was 1941, and today it's 1942. Happy New Year, Robbie, someone called. He stood in his pajamas, thinking about it, until it seemed to make sense. Happy New Year. 1942 was a happy New Year, and people were tooting their horns, getting ready to be happy. 1941 was a sad year when Rick had gone away. Now they were going to be happy, and Rick would have to come back again, because there was only one place to be happy, and that was here. I'm Nancy Williams. Thanks for being here with me. And finally, to wrap up today's program, a poem entitled Santa Claus and the Mouse. The author is unknown. One Christmas Eve, when Santa Claus came to a certain house, to fill the children's stockings there, he found a little mouse. Merry Christmas, little friend, said Santa, good and kind. The same to you, sir, said the mouse. I thought you wouldn't mind if I should stay awake tonight and watch you for a while. You're very welcome, little friend, said Santa with a smile. And then he filled the stockings up before the mouse could wink. From top to toe, from toe to top, he never left a chink. There they won't hold one more thing, said Santa Claus with pride. A twinkle came in Mousy's eye as humbly he replied. It's not polite to contradict. Your pardon, I implore. But in that fullest stocking there, I could put one thing more. Ho, 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 laughed Santa. Silly mouse, don't I know how to pack? From filling stockings all these years, I should have learned the knack. But then he took the stocking down from where it hung so high and said, All right, put in one thing more. I give you leave to try. Mousy chuckled to himself, and then he softly stole right up to that stocking's crowded toe, and he gnawed a little hole. There, kind sir, I've put in one thing more, for you must own that little hole was not in there before. How Santa Claus did laugh and laugh, and then he gaily spoke, Why, you shall have a Christmas cheese for that nice little joke. Okay, now a Christmas program on Utah Public Radio just wouldn't be the same without a recipe. So I have one here for Christmas, wassail or wassail, however you want to pronounce it. This is from my Aunt Catherine Larson. And I love this recipe because it's not too sweet. I don't like sweet wassail. And this one has just a little bit of kick to it. And if you uh, don't get all of the ingredients written down, it is on the Utah Public Radio website. Just click on the Programs tab and scroll down to Zesty Garden, and you'll be able to get the ingredients from there. But this is not a very difficult recipe. It's really easy to do. First, you start out with a half a gallon of apple cider. If you're like me, you like to double the recipe and have lots of wassail to go around, and that's no problem with this recipe. But I'll just give you the half-gallon recipe, and you can decide if you want to double it or not. All right, now, something I want to say about the apple cider. If you can find fresh-pressed, unpasteurized apple cider, this seems to make just uh, the world of difference. You can use any apple cider that you can get. And uh, so if you're in the store and you find apple cider, go go ahead and use it. But usually it's filtered and usually it is pasteurized. But if you can find the unpasteurized and fresh pressed, go right ahead. All right. A half a gallon of apple cider. The next ingredient is one six ounce can of lemonade with its accompanying three cans of water. So basically it's like making the lemonade 
altogether. You dump in the frozen lemonade along with the three cans of water that goes with it. And one 12-ounce can of orange juice along with its accompanying three cans of water. Then a half a cup of sugar, an additional two cups of water, and then here are the, the items that uh, give it uh, even uh, just a little bit more flavoring. 12 whole cloves. These are those little stick things that you that put on top of it. But the 12 whole cloves, three cinnamon sticks, and then one teaspoon of nutmeg. Now, you, you can just throw this all together, and then you simmer it until it's hot. And then enjoy it. Now... If you want to add things to this, I, I like to experiment while I'm cooking. And one of the things that I like to do is to add extra of, of items that are already there that I really like. I don't recommend that for the cloves. Uh, you could add like maybe two or three more would be okay. The nutmeg, definitely do not add any more than the recipe calls for. Uh, one time I had to strain it through cheesecloth to, to get all the little pieces of nutmeg out. But just a little bit, that one teaspoon really helps out. And you can add you know, three or four more cinnamon sticks if you'd like. But simmer this all together until it's hot and enjoy it. And the best way to enjoy this is while you've got a good book. And might I recommend The Whistling Season by Ivan Doig or Peace Like a River by Leif Anger or anything by Wendell Berry, but especially Jaber Crow. Thank you again for joining us today on The Zesty Garden. We'll see you next year. You've been listening to a special Zesty Garden holiday program from 2013, which we have featured here on Access Utah today. Hope you've enjoyed the program.